Hey America, hello, welcome to the podcast, Cry, Let It All Out. I'm Sweet D, your host, Sweetness or Cry, you could call me, and uh, welcome. I miss you very much, and as you know, I love you guys very much. I hope you enjoy this podcast. We're doing Michael Jackson, but before we get into Michael Jackson, we're going to do the Rastafarian movement. Uh, this paper was written by my cousin Trent Korzinska. He goes to UMass Boston. He's in his senior year and he studied Caribbean studies. So let's get into the Rastafarian movement by Trent Korzinska. And then we're going to get into Bob Marley, uh, one of the most famous Rastafarians, and uh, discuss his song War. The Rastafarian movement, the history of black empowerment. The Rastafarian movement is a religion that can be said to focus on one key aspect, black empowerment. It is a movement that incorporates religion, community, and language into a unique blend that is used to fight oppression. Rastafarians and their beliefs have undergone changes and evolved over time through a series of difficult events. This essay seeks to display an understanding of the modern Rastafarian way of life through describing its history and analyzing how it shaped the religion to this day. The origins of the Rastafarian movement can be attributed to a certain man who may not even wish to be credited, Marcus Garvey. America, Marcus Garvey is a good man. He is very smart. Garvey is described as the foremost prophet of black liberation in the early 20th century, giving strong roots to the religious movement soaked in black empowerment in the face of injustice. Garvey's solution to combating the systematic mistreatment of black people was a radical one. However, involving a push to repatriate descent. Hey, Josh, can you pronounce that for me? Okay, involving a push to repatriate descendants of Africans back to the continent of Africa from where they had been taken in order to establish a strong black presence in the world. This can most pre- prominently be seen in his movement slogan, Africa for Africans, which called upon people to reclaim the continent even if he considered true freedom to come whenever people were least expecting it. The strong belief of repatriation placed immense importance on the continent of Africa itself. Marcus Garvey's movement, many black empowerment messages as a result of his experiences with racism in his home country of Jamaica, where he had witnessed firsthand the privilege that individuals of lighter skin had received. These experiences had not only given him a proper motivation to start his movement, but they were necessary in order for him to better relate with the wide audience that he had aimed for. His followers were adamant and stuck to his message, finding inspiration from his teachings about how no person should be degraded below another and that God should be visualized based on a person's own image. This black-centered view on religion gave people much-needed catharsis regarding worship and prayer, and many latched on to the idea of a black god. Despite the fact that Garvey did not attribute color to God, he did not stop others from doing so, which resulted in his followers doing exactly that. 
The people involved in Garvey's movement grew more and more interested in this concept. The combination of a focus on Africa and religion-based black empowerment produced a splinter group that is known as the Rastafarian movement. Rastafarians looking through the lens that Garvey had given him, saw the coronation of Haile Selassie, also known as Rastafari, shedding light on the origins of the name Rastafarian. As emperor of Ethiopia, as a sort of fulfillment of the claim that Garvey had made regarding the resurgence of Africa and the freedom of the black population, Rastafarians remained in remained devoted to their reverence of Selassie to the point of claiming that he was an incarnation of God, though met pushback from a number of Jamaicans, which included Garvey. Garvey had been effectively replaced by Selassie as the figurehead for what the Rastafarian movement believed in. Their faith in Selassie had not had only strengthened their interest in Africa and Ethiopia in particular so that both of Garvey's original values of Africa and black empowerment had become even more fervent. Faith in Haile Selassie was considered by many Rastafarians to be a method of fighting back against the general injustices caused by colonialism. Leonard Howard colonialism, excuse me. Leonard Howell, which can be attributed as the progenitor to the worship of Selassie, pointed others to show respect for the Ethiopian emperor instead of the British influence. Here, a clear merging of the two central themes of the Rastafarian movement can be seen, as one can experience black empowerment via liberation by proclaiming their allegiance to Africa. How will utilize this faucet, facet of the movement to suggest that local farmers pay taxes to a small community instead of the government as they acted as representatives from Haile Selassie? In addition, they were known to sell ganja, which caused some amount of conflict with the police. The actions of Howell and his group created several lasting impacts upon the Rastafarian movement. The importance of Gunja due to its history with the group and a strong sense of community that is united against oppression against black people. Growing tensions with the real police resulted in Howell's community of Rastafarians to be raided and many buildings to be destroyed. With the community's destruction, an opportunity came to the scattered Rastafarians. As a result of their scattering, they became spread out over a larger area and could thus reach a wider audience to introduce their religion to Though Howell had lost his place as figurehead for the religion, its members' sense of community most certainly helped them to build bonds with people around them and spread their beliefs. Heavy influence to the Rastafarian movement did not end with Howell's actions, as other important individuals were involved as well. Joseph N. Hibbert, a scholar of the Bible, had claimed that there were hidden important meanings to be found in parts of the sacred texts that ministers had kept secret. Even after the decline of Hibbert as a leader for keeping hidden interpretations of the Bible from new members, the idea that they are hidden messages to be found is one that has stayed popular and just survives to this day. 
Another leader, Archibald Dunkley, had been known to be heavily against the act of spirit possession, something that other religions had implemented. Indeed, the only spirit that is believed to be possessing individuals is the spirit of God, a symbol of the central rule of the Bible. The Bible itself, while having an important role in the Rastafarian culture, is frequently studied and analyzed due to the idea that it is particularly Eurocentric. Considering the fact that Christianity, a religion which bases faith on the Bible, was the central religion of the British colonizers that had once controlled Jamaica, it's not difficult to surmise why this idea has risen in popularity. Studying the Bible gives readers a method of interpreting holy words in a way that makes sense to readers and is free from the influence of those that do not have an individual's interest in mind. Rastafarians believe that the Caribbean church is an extension of the European and North American church, further cementing their desire to avoid misinterpretation of the Bible, which they believe was created by black people. Again, the theme of a black-centered view on religion resurfaces in order to fight against oppression. While the Bible is their sacred text, it is not above scrutiny and thus cannot be used as an umbrella for how all people should live their lives. Another tool utilized by Rastafarians in order to combat the lingering effects of colonism is language. One of the most prominent sounds in Jamaican Creole is I, as it gives a sense of agency to the person using it. By contrast, the word me is seen as expressive of subservience and is avoided because of the fact. The pronoun I and I doubles down on this as it refers to the concept that God can also be found living in each person, incorporating religion into language. Further examples can be found in overstand as opposed to understand, as if you truly know about something, you are over it and down press as opposed to oppress as a person is being put down instead of up. Rastafarians use language. Rastafarians' use of language is key to their religion, as language is such a prominent part of the community that it cements their beliefs by simply speaking. While Rastafarian history is rife in turbulence that threatened its stability, it nonetheless has risen up and continues to rise up against those that put them down. Its history has shaped it into the religion it is today, thanks to its reliance on religion, community, language, and especially black empowerment. Each facet of the Rastafarian movement is a factor in its survival, evolution, and growth. And that is the paper on the Rastafarian movement by Trent Korazinska, a senior, my cousin from UMass Boston, studying computer science. Now I wanted to get into a song written by Bob Marley. Uh, As you know, Bob Marley is a Rastafarian. This song is called War. I believe it's one of 
Bob Marley's greatest songs, along with No Woman, No Cry. But he has so many great songs, Bob Marley, and he's a legend. So the song War begins like this. These, this is the lyrics of Bob Marley, War. Until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned, everywhere is war, me say war. That until there are no longer first-class and second-class citizens of any nation, until the color of a man's skin is no more significance than the color of his eyes, me say war. That until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all with regard to race, without regard to race, this a war. That until that day, the dream of lasting peace, world citizenship, rule of international morality will remain in but a fleeting illusion to be pursued, but never attained. Now everywhere is war, war. And until the ignoble and unhappy regime that hold our brothers in Angola, in Mozambique, South Africa, subhuman bondage have been toppled, utterly destroyed, while everywhere is war. Me say war. War in the east, war in the west, war up north, war down south, war, war. Rumors of war, and until that day, the African continent will not know peace. We Africans will fight. We find it necessary, and we know we shall win, as we are confident in the victory of good over evil. Good over evil, yeah, good over evil. Good over evil, yeah, good over evil. Good over evil, yeah. That's the lyrics of War by Bob Marley. That explains a lot about war. Um, We will do Bob Marley in this podcast, um, but now we're going to get into Michael Jackson. Hope you enjoyed the Rastafarian moment and that song War by Bob Marley. Michael Jackson, the legend, the greatest entertainer that ever lived. The book I have is called Michael Jackson Thrill, and it's by, let me get the author here, Caroline Latham, and it's called Michael Jackson Thrill. The first chapter is Little Michael Enters Show Business. There's an introduction, though. Let's get into the introduction. Michael Jackson Thrill by Caroline Latham. Michael Jackson steps out onto the stage in Atlanta in front of more than 50,000 screaming fans, nearly all of whom want to reach out and touch him. This thin, weary body struts, crouches, sways with the intensity of the lyrics, even stretches out flat on the floor before rhythm 
to the insistent beat. The long legs flash and cut through the air, and the high exuberant, exuberant voice never misses a note. The fans are on their feet, and the current of electricity flowing between Michael and the audience is practically visible. You know they won't sit down until he lets them. Michael Jackson sits alone in his room. Sorry, America, turning the page. In his room all day Sunday. He is fasting, subsisting the entire day on nothing but liquids and his own personal rite of purification. He reads, he daydreams. He talks on the phone to friends like Christy McNichol and Diana Ross. He tries out a few dance steps. He chats with his mother or some of his brothers and sisters. It's a quiet day of contemplation, a period of total isolation from the world of showbiz glitter. It closes with Michael's prayers. It's certainly a far cry from the stereotype of the glamour life of the superstar, but it's a routine Michael follows week after week. Michael works in the recording studio on one of the cuts for his long-awaited album, Thriller. He shows himself to be a tireless perfectionist who drives himself and those around him to do the very best that is possible. He sings a few lines, stops to take because he is dissatisfied. He does the phrase over and over, makes notes for the engineer about the way it should be mixed. Producer Quincy Jones tells him it's fine, but Michael is looking for something more, something better. He'll know it when he hears it. At last, he gets it right. The song moves on to its conclusion. Michael throws up his hands in glee, shouts out his relief, and promptly starts a food fight right there in the expensive high-tech state-of-the-art recording studio. Michael agrees to make an appearance at the telecast of the American Music Awards, at which he will win an unprecedented eight awards. His friend Brooke Shields reads about it in one paper and calls to congratulate him. He casually asks if she'd like to be his date for the event. She leaves her dormitory room at Princeton, covered with Michael Jackson posters, and flies 3,000 miles to California for just one evening. They are photographed, holding hands, and the inevitable gossip begins. But a spokesman for Michael, sports promoter Don King, says firmly, Love, no, I don't think it's that. They just like each other very much. And Brooke's mother says enigmatically, <laughs> excuse me, Brooke's love for him, which he is the consummate professional. Michael hangs out with his brothers, still among those closest to him. They go out in the backyard of the house where he lives with his mother, a $2 million mansion in Encino, and play a little one-on-one. They look at the animals in Michael's menagerie. They check on the construction of the Disney ride Michael has ordered and stalled for his personal pleasure. 
watching the numbness seemed like an ordinary family, laughing and joking, shouting insults at one another, talking about their kids and their work, until you begin to think about the extraordinary expensiveness of their toys and the fact that there are bodyguards and guard dogs discreetly in evidence. Michael Jackson Lee finally comes up with the concept for the video to promote the title cut from his new album, Thriller. The lighthearted dash through a chamber of horrors becomes, thanks to Michael's fame and financial leverage, a big-budget production rumored to have cost more than a million dollars with 20 makeup artists, 18 professional dancers, and a heart director John Landis, Animal House and Training Places at the helm. And while the video was in production, Michael Jackson Production was filming an hour-long documentary called The Making of Thriller. Most artists give these videos away to promote their albums. Michael Jackson became the first to sell his video to MTV, and then on top of that, he sells the documentary both to cable TV and to a video cassette manufacturer. The entire music world is stunned by the commercial shrewdness of these moves. Let me just check the time real quick, America, because I want to get in human nature. Okay. Michael Jackson is by accident at home alone except for a reporter. Family bodyguards, the people who ordinarily protect Michael from the world by chance, all happen to be away at the same time, leaving Michael on his own for a few minutes. The doorbell rings and shy Michael is thrown into a panic. He lifts the curtain to peer outside. His voice is trembling. Finally, he forces himself to open the door to find a perfectly innocuous messenger sent over with some sheet music he wanted. He smiles, thankfully, and goes back inside. You get the feeling that this sort of accident is never going to be allowed to happen again. The vignette suggests something of the complexity of Michael Jackson, both as a public star and as a private person. He is, in fact, something of an enigma to even his most devoted fans. For example, nearly everyone who meets Michael personally is struck by his quality of otherworldliness, his childlike innocence in the face of such adult motives as greed, envy, and pride. On the other hand, they are equally impressed by his thoroughgoing professionalism. He is devoted to his work more than that he is dedicated. Although at the stage of his career, his name alone would sell anything he put on record. His labor is long and hard to make sure each of his recordings lives up to his high standards. There is nothing childlike or casual about Michael's professional behavior. Another apparent paradox is the difference between the shy private Michael Jackson and the effervescent public figure. He surrounds himself with the protective wall of friends and family because it is genuinely difficult for him to deal with strangers. He spends most of his free time at home, avoids situations where he will be thrown in with new people, yet 
when he gets on the stage or in the public eye, he appears to enjoy the limelight. He prays and he struts. He makes emotional contact with his fans. He thrives on the rapport that he develops with millions of people. And even though he is continually dogged by reporters and photographers, he never acts petulant or sulky about the camera. He signs autographs about their perennial presence. He smiles for the or for the camera, he signs autographs, he behaves graciously. Even after the recent unfortunate accident with this, when his hair caught on fire and the back of his head was badly burned, Michael smiled and waved at the crowd as he was carried on a stretcher to the waiting ambulance. Okay, we're going to stop there. That's page 14. It's the introduction of the Michael Jackson Thrill Book by Caroline Latham. I'm going to get into Michael Jackson some lyrics now. This song was written by Michael Jackson. It's called Human Nature, and it comes from his Thriller album, one of the greatest albums ever made in the history of America and the world. He says, looking out across the nighttime, the city winks a sleepless eye. Hear her voice shake my window, sweet seducing sighs. Get me out into the nighttime, for walls won't hold me tonight. If this town is just an apple, then let me take a bite. If they say why, 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 why. Tell them that it's human nature. Why, 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 why does he do me that way? If they say why, 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 tell them that it's human nature. Why, why does he do me that way? Reaching out to touch a stranger. Electric eyes are everywhere. See that girl, she knows I'm watching. She likes the way I stare. Yes, she does, Michael. If they say, why, 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 tell them that it's human nature. Why, 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 why does he do me that way? If they say, why, 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 tell them that it's human nature. Why, why? Does he do me that way? I like living this way. I like loving this way. Why? Oh, why? That way. Why? Oh, why? Looking out across the morning where the city's heart begins to beat. Reaching out, I touch her shoulder. I'm dreaming of the street. If they say why, why, tell them that it's human nature. Why? Why does he do me that way? If they say, why, why does he do me that way? If they say, why, cha-da-cha-sha-sha-sha-sha-sha, why does he do me that way? If they say, why, why, tell him that it's human nature. Why, why does he do me that way? Da 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 da. Why, why 
does he do me that way? I like living this way. Why? Oh, why that way? And that's Human Nature, one of my favorite songs on the Thriller album, written by Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson wrote his own music. I think that's a great song. It's a great produced song about human nature. Just tell everyone, America, why, why? Tell them that it's human nature. That's why you do the things you do. Tell them that it's human nature. I like living this way. I like loving this way. Michael Jackson was... He he was he died, and uh, he died because of medication he was given by a doctor. The doctor was a black man, and he gave him too much medication one night, and Michael Jackson died. The Jackson family blamed the doctor and uh, they sued the doctor and they won so Michael Jackson was killed by his personal doctor which is a travesty I miss Michael Jackson so much he was such a leader he was so handsome I think he looked the best when he did Thriller from the Thriller album um, I liked everything about him then. Um, but he was murdered. His kill, the Jacksons won the case, and he was murdered by his doctor. We miss Michael Jackson. He was so generous. He was about the world and world peace and world healing. He believed we all were brothers and sisters, and he sang so beautifully. He had so many different styles of singing. Um, Let's note that. He sang high, mostly high notes. He sang, he could sing low, he could sing, he could sing any song he was given. And he had different vocal performances uh, with his voice because he was able to do so much with his voice. So that's all I'm going to do today for Michael Jackson and the podcast uh, Cry Let It All Out. Let's cry and let it all out for Bob Marley and Michael Jackson and America. And if you ever uh, cry... um, I cried a lot over the loss of my mother and father, America, and my grandparents. It uh, hurt me really bad. But you have to cry and let it all out. When you cry, let it all out. Let it all out. You will feel a sense of healing and relief after that. Have a great day, America. I love you very much. See you at the next podcast. Sweet D, sweetness cry. Uh, I'm located, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm at CCTV right now in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. Have a great day. Bye now. See you next time.